Good day and once again, welcome back to the podcast. Today is Monday, 25th of November, 1946. On the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald today, the main story relates to a dramatic rescue of plane crash survivors. Five days ago, a Dakota DC-3, the civilian version of the C-47 aircraft that, you might recall, conveyed Bet from Sydney to Manila all those months ago, crash-landed on a glacier high in the Franco-Italian Alps. All 12 of the passengers and crew were remarkably rescued in a taxi shuttle service conducted by two Swiss Feisler Storch planes fitted with skis. Also on the front page today, the Soviet Union is building an atomic plant. Reports out of Turkey, Russian scientists aided by German physicists are supervising the construction of a gigantic atomic energy project near the Black Sea port of Sukhum, according to travellers reaching Istanbul. In the US, 21 states in northern USA will dim out tomorrow as the result of the nationwide strike of soft coal miners. Some car firms have already laid off workers, and American steel production is expected to drop 20% within a week. And in a reminder that World War II only recently finished and came very close to Australia, news from Brisbane, fishing craft hits floating mine. On Sunday, three fishermen were killed instantly when their 45-foot launch struck a floating mine off Palm Island, North Queensland. The launch was hurled 300 feet into the air before it disintegrated. The tragedy was seen by fishermen in another launch less than a hundred yards away. And in Sydney, theft of globes put out the vital South Head light. Hornby Light, the key light showing the entrance to Sydney Harbour, was out of operation for four hours last night after the six 60-watt globes had been stolen. The light is situated in a 20-foot tower on the military reserve above the reef at the tip of South Head. As there is no light on North Head, the Hornby light is most important in guiding shipping entering the harbour away from the treacherous reefs and cliffs near the Gap. At 5pm, two schoolboys reported to Warrant Officer Vines at South Head Barracks that the globes of the light were missing. The boys said they had seen five youths in the vicinity of the light, earlier in the afternoon. Expert electricians were immediately rushed to the spot to install new globes. And in the weather, the forecast for Sydney is cloudy and mild, but mainly fine with light to moderate northeasterly winds and slight seas. Before hearing from Bet today, we'll resume the story of UNRWA. Chapter 25. UNRWA's Repatriation Stand You'll recall from previous episodes that UNRWA made special arrangements and paid close attention to the needs of displaced children. Arrangements were made for repatriation when and if the nationality of these children could be determined after long hours of patient exploration by welfare officers. Many of them were united with their families through the machinery of UNRWA's Central Tracing Bureau, whose mass tracing activities rewove the tangled lives of thousands of victims of Nazi aggression 
and wrote a great drama of reunion throughout Europe. In the regular displaced person camps and centres, children were also given special care through clinics, schools and playgrounds. The schools were all staffed and directed by displaced persons. Books were almost non-existent, but UNRWA solved that problem by having some printed, with their texts approved by the governments concerned. In Munich, an UNRWA university had a student body of 2,000. During all of the months UNRWA was in charge of camp management, the agency consistently urged voluntary repatriation for those who were not in conflict with the government of their own country. UNRWA's information, and there was a great deal of it, indicated that those who had already returned home were well treated. Not one single instance of mistreatment of a returned refugee was ever substantiated. UNRWA's argument was this. Any displaced person who was not in political conflict with his government was better off working on his own soil for the rehabilitation of his homeland than he was sitting in a displaced person camp anywhere, his spirits and skills deteriorating with each passing month. The great majority of displaced persons in Germany were repatriated in the first five months after VE Day, when more than five million people returned to their homes. In the next five months, almost 300,000 more set out. Then, repatriation began to decrease steadily, pushed down by factors obviously beyond the control of the military authorities and UNRWA. In the summer of 1946, a 60-day ration plan was inaugurated, under which the military authorities agreed to turn over a free issue of 60-day rations to UNRWA for each displaced Polish national who returned to Poland and UNRWA agreed to ship the rations to Polish reception points and supervise their issuance. More than 94,000 displaced persons returned to Poland from Germany and Austria under this plan. A similar drive the following spring was not as successful. When UNRWA turned the displaced person camps in Germany over to the Preparatory Commission of the International Refugee Organization in June 1947, the camp populations stood at 558,851. Very few of those still left in them wanted to return to their homelands and resettlement in other lands seemed the only answer. We'll resume the story of UNRWA in further episodes. But now, let's hear a very significant letter that Bet is writing to her boss, the regional superintendent for Changxi province. Twenty five November nineteen forty six to Mr Herbert H. Rummel, Chief Regional Representative, UNRWA, Jiangxi Regional Office, Nan Chang, from Betty Souter, Reports Officer, UNRWA, Nan Chang. Further to our discussion this morning concerning my assignment here, I would like to make the following request. On march eighteenth, nineteen forty seven, I shall have completed 12 months of the service with the UNRWA China Mission and, pursuant to the request that I have already signed to be declared surplus in December 1946 and in accordance with the policy of reducing the numbers of UNRWA personnel in China, 
I would like to receive my discharge in Sydney, my home station, on or before that date. In view of the transportation difficulties, both from here to Shanghai and from Shanghai to Sydney, this application does not seem to be premature and I would like you to take the necessary steps to obtain my clearance. I am making early application also so that you will have reasonable time for obtaining a replacement for the position held by me in this office. Production credits for this episode, produced and narrated by Warren Henry, the voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorn, and the featured tune from 1946, Nuages, or in English, Clouds, performed by Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli. (laughs) ¶¶ 